This is Tire Information Whiskey, 2153 Zulu, wind 0605. Zero, zero, Seriously, Mike Juarez, this is Archer Radar Contact. Hazardous weather information from Minnesota, available on flight service frequency. You've dialed in the Flying Midwest Podcast, connecting aviators from across America's heartland. Sharing news, information, and events from around the region. Sit back, relax, and join our crew for some hangar talk as we discuss a wide variety of regional aviation topics. And now, from our home at the Anoka County Blaine Airport, our checklist is complete and we're ready for departure for another episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. What is going on, everyone? Jim here with the Flying Midwest Podcast. So happy you're able to join us. On this episode, we bring you part one of two episodes with Kerry McCauley, author and ferry pilot. We'll talk about his background and how he got into ferry flying and some of the adventures he had along the way. And as always, news, information, and events from around the region with some friendly hangar talk along the way. So strap in and let's take off into this episode of the Fly Midwest Podcast. Hey, Jim. Hey, Maddie. Hello, Trevor. Good evening, Trevor. How are you guys doing? Doing swell. Living the dream. Welcome back from uh, hiatus. Yeah, nice little holiday break for us. Yeah, a little bit. It was more of a holiday break for me than it was for you guys, but yeah, because I was on a holiday, as they say in Europe. On holiday, yeah. You went down to uh, the, the Florida. Florida. The Florida. Yep. Of the, what the? <laughs> Jim's the one tired. And only Florida. No, the Florida. You went to the Florida. Went to a Florida <laughs> beach is what you're trying to say. He, yeah, he went to some beaches, it looks like, or a beach at least. Went to a couple of them. Okay. Nice. East or west side? West side. Nice. Do you know where the hurricane went? No. For Myers. That's exactly where we were. Oh, okay. nice. There was a beach left. So the weird thing was the waterfront properties were being rebuilt. It seems like before anything inland, like they wanted the tourist. That brings money. Brings yeah. in a lot of money. Um, we went to Sanibel Island, completely decimated. Like wow. the trees, all the leaves are ripped off. Like it just looks dead, devastated. Kind of eye-opening. Yeah, but what a vacation. But overall, it was good. We went to we went to Orlando. Didn't get a chance to fly like I wanted to, but whatever. Did you get your plane you... back up north yet? No. Or is it still down there? Still in Little Rock. You gotta go get that thing. Hey, Maddie. Hey. Yes, I'll do it. I'll freaking do it. I'll do it. I just need some time off. So she won't do it. She's not gonna get time off. No, she's not gonna do it. It's it's I'll only it. six hours. So it's six hours she didn't have yesterday. Yeah, I I haven't been flying a whole lot, so I do it. Yeah, I haven't been flying a whole lot either, obviously. Because your plane's in Well, let's freaking change that. Yeah, I, I've never flown a 150 before, but it can't be much different than 172, right? Just a lot smaller. Um, <laughs> a few laps in the pattern, it'll be fine. Little itty bitty guy. This ties in perfectly with our guest today. Does it? Yes. It actually does. <laughs> it actually does. Here's something very sad. I have to bounce while you guys do the interview. It is sad. 
as happens from time to time on our podcast, one of us can't make it, and it's okay. We'll share you know. all the fun and excitement with you, and unlike Maddie, you'll probably actually listen to the episode so you can hear a conversation and learn all about fairy flying. Yay! Also, Blake, <laughs> don't tell my Blake. students about this. Blake. You know who you are. Balaka, you want to go to war? <laughs> <laughs> I pretty, I'm pretty sure he could, could deck go me. to war. We could go. 100% not getting cut from the podcast itself. <laughs> Balake. Um, I actually am all in support of Balake telling all of your students about the podcast. Please. Yeah, right? No, please don't. No, Why? that's not organic. That's forced. He I knows don't understand. That's forced. It's he organic knows. because it's... He knows you're not the one who's spreading it. I told him not to. I tell a lot Maddie's of people not to do a lot of things, and they do it anyways, so... Maddie's hey, embarrassed. Yeah, your kids don't count, Jim. So, no, I, there's other people. They, they count very well, Maddie. They, they could probably count to 100 faster than you. Yeah, they'll miss 13, though. Why would they miss 13? Because every kid misses 13 or 14 because they sound the same. I don't think that there's sound science to support your claim. No, I don't think I so. I know <laughs> some kids, and they all did it. Oh, some kids. They sound, the, those two numbers sound very yeah, similar 13, when you're four. Where the hell were we? <laughs> um, we were trying to get somewhere with this podcast. Do we want to talk about um, our ridiculous attempt at a live stream, or should we just let that die forever? Die forever. Okay, sounds good. Um, so that it was funny. It will live on in our minds because we were there, and it will also live on in the Badger Pilots. Mind. Yeah, both people that watched the live stream were sorry. That's, we'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> clearly didn't make it to an actual episode. But speaking of ferry pilots, um, that's who we're going to talk to tonight. Kerry McCauley is a professional ferry pilot. Um, he's done trips all over the world, and he's written some books about it. So we'll be excited to talk to him. Sorry Trevor couldn't make the interview, but you can hear all about it when you listen to the podcast, Trevor. Woohoo! But first... The news! With Maddie and Trevor. So a lot of you guys probably have heard about it last week when we had the FAA's computer outage for the NOTAM system. Yeah, this was probably the second time in recent memory uh, where there was a nationwide ground stop, which caused over 6,000 flights to be grounded due to this database corruption or whatever it was. It was a short amount of time, but it was enough to really disrupt the national airspace system. Now, the FAA is actually saying that the outage was caused by a database file not being put into a proper file location, but there is confirmation that there was no evidence of a cyber attack, which is at about 7 a.m. in the day in question, the FAA's notice to air missions system went down, grounding all domestic flights. Then it was down for a couple hours, and a lot of people really didn't have any idea what was going on, which compounding on this issue and Maddie's going to talk about this a little bit later, the Southwest scheduling issue, trying to get, you know, all those customers taken care of from the previous week's uh, massive weather event. So it's just been a really rough, very rocky couple weeks for the national airspace system. What's kind of interesting is certain types of missions were allowed to continue flying and aircraft that were in the air were allowed to continue on to their destination. So there was no real danger. Um, but as we all know, as pilots, we have to know all pertinent information pertaining to that flight, which includes our NOTAMs, runways that are closed, airspaces that are temporarily closed, taxiways that are closed, things of that nature that really pertain to the operations of that airport and that flight. 
Well, since it's relevant, I feel we should talk about Southwest for a second. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have heard about the chaos that ensued over Christmas um, with Southwest Airlines. Unfortunately, because of a similar but not the same issue, Southwest Airlines had quite the debacle on their hands and thousands and thousands of people were affected. Essentially, what happened was there was a major weather event that swept across the country. And with with these kinds of events, airlines do have issues. Crews can't get to where they need to go. Um, people are stranded. It's generally, you know, it tends to be an issue, but usually it only spans a day or so. Unfortunately, Southwest system completely died. The system was about 20 years out of date. And because of this, the analog system had issues with all of these cancellations of these flights. The major uh, places that were affected were Denver, Colorado, and St. Louis, Missouri. Um, those were really, really bad ones. Um, but flights all over the United States from Southwest were affected. Nobody could get through to Southwest customer service lines. Um, it, everything was a mess. People were sleeping in airports. Crews were sleeping in airports. It was the wildest airline event in recent history, I would say. That's a personal opinion. However, I'm sure I am always right. So unfortunately, this event and the issue with the system not being able to be resolved for several days caused over a week, if not longer, of people stranded in different airports and general chaos amidst uh, the airline. They even drew attention of the DOT. They said they were, quote, concerned by Southwest's unacceptable rate of cancellations and delays and reports of lack of prompt customer service. The department will examine whether cancellations were controllable if Southwest is complying with its customer service plan. This obviously will be under investigation for some time, but it has come out that because of this antiquated system and lack of updates to said system, unfortunately, this caused the havoc that we saw. If you don't upgrade your systems, eventually you're going to run into trouble. Let's go to Wisconsin. Ew. Said no one ever. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I have nothing to re rebuke for that. <laughs> One of my students says, keeps saying I'm from Wisconsin. He knows where I'm from, but he's like, they're like the same, right? I'm like, no. All right, so let's go to Wisconsin. So there was a contest in central Wisconsin where a STEM school, West OSHA Central High School, was able to receive a donation from a 501c3 nonprofit organization called Eagle's Nest Project Wisconsin for funding a airplane project. Now, this project is actually kind of cool because it's it's incorporating aviation into the general curriculum for, and the school received a donation of an airplane that was 100% paid for by donations. And it's an RV-12, and it's going to have 9th to 12th graders to build an RV-12 aircraft. Now, this is probably about $100,000 worth, uh, worth of donations. And this organization Eagle's Nest Projects Wisconsin relies 100% on donations. I think this is a pretty cool thing because it actually kind of spurs the possibilities, the thoughts of what can you accomplish. And it opens up a whole new world of building with your hands. You know, if you go into high school, you, you used to have shop class, woodworking, things like that, home ec. Well, this kind of puts that into a whole new level. You're actually building something that you could actually fly. So this program is actually beginning in 2023. The program produ produced about eight pilots. Three of them are now flying commercially, four in the professional flight programs. Two students went to gain their AMP certificates, and another one works for the FAA for certifying aircraft parts. 
as we all know, as, as aviators, aircraft parts are very expensive. So this is kind of a cool avenue to try to get new blood in the FAA to, to really start easing some of those restrictions to incorporate them into certified aircraft. Keep it up. Eagle's Nest Project Wisconsin. Keep it up. I think that's really excellent. I think there is a distinct and utter lack of aviation in schools. And you oh, know, yeah. some people know about being a pilot, but as far as being a mechanic, no. So I think have, getting aviation in schools just in general is something awesome. All right, we're going to go over to North Dakota, who I feel like we haven't talked about in a little bit. So North Dakota's governor, Doug Burgum. So there's been a proposed um, $37 million of state spending on drones and unmanned aerial systems. North Dakota has made themselves one of the pioneers in drones. And to stay as a leader in this technology, uh, the governor said that this spending would definitely fuel that. So this extra funding is for the next two years, so 2023 to 2025, and will be split between two things. $30 million will go to expanding Vantis, which if you have not heard of Vantis, it's basically the state's um, unmanned aerial systems traffic control network. So they have been developing that for the past few years. $7 million remaining will go to the Grand Sky uh, UAS Business and Aviation Park in Grand Forks. So um, this still has to go through legislature, but this is a proposed bill and it is being supported. It'll help build this uh, the momentum that they have going for this drone industry. Funnily enough, it came on the heels of the FAA who announced that UAvionics, um, so you may have heard of UAvionics before, they, they have uh, different products for aviation. What they really do is uh, develop command and control software for drones. And they just got permission to conduct flights of um, small drones beyond visual line of sight in North Dakota with this Vantis network. This is the first company that has been granted this approval. If you know anything about drones, you know that they have to be line of sight legally. Do people do this? Not always. But legally, that is the requirement. You, they must be line of sight in some way. You have spotters or you have to, um, as the pilot, your operator have eyes on your your drone but with this vantis network that's no longer an issue for this specific company anyway the association for uncrewed vehicle systems international which works to further uh uas development and commercialization obviously is in support of this saying that it is crucial for the advancement of the industry and provides immense public benefits so as i mentioned earlier north dakota has um been looking to establish itself as a leader in drone technology for the last few years and they unveiled proposals actually in 2018 to build infrastructures to support drone operations beyond line of sight. So this being something similar to the Vantis network. And this will allow a lot of things to happen. Everybody thinks of the uh, Amazon drone delivery, but that being a legitimate uh, thing that could possibly happen in the coming years. All right, let's go to Gary, Indiana. Some positive news on the fuel front for this area outside Chicago. There's a new fuel facility that's going to be included in the uh, in the Gary Airport. This is from the uh, governor's budget proposal. House Bill 1001 appropriates $9.8 million during the uh, 2024 budget year for infrastructure improvements at that airport. That money would go towards constructing an on-site fuel distribution facility to boost the airport's cargo sector and GA flying. This is actually kind of cool because we all know that there's a segment of the population that's trying to push away from fossil fuels and let it fuel. Looks like there's going to be a, a huge tap into the aviation fuel market in Gary, Indiana. Governor Holcomb included this in his budget. His quote is saying, having an on-site fuel distribution facility is critical to long-term competitive advantage of the airport. Eliminating the need to truck fuel 
to the Gary Chicago International Airport reduces our exposure to air to market fluctuations while also providing the airport with enhanced capability to handle additional operations as we continue to mature our our offerings. This has actually been a, a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation and ensures that appropriations remain within the budget as it moves through the legislative process over the next few months. We're going to end off our news with a sweet story. So many pilots, many aviators have a member of their family, maybe their mom or their dad or um, somebody, you know, an uncle in the family who was in aviation, and that's how they got in. Now, Addie Rant, on the other hand, is a fourth-generation aviator. Addie and her mom both hail from Glenwood, Minnesota. And Addie, who just turned 18 not too long ago, uh, she just got her private pilot certificate um, in July of last year. She soloed when she was 16. And over time, over the last couple of years, she has gotten all the hours and got her um, private pilot certificate. Addie is now at uh, Rocky Mountain College in Billings, Montana, and she's getting her degree in aeronautics. And her dream is to follow in her mom's footsteps. Her mom, Captain uh, Michelle Rance, flies for Delta Airlines. Addie's dream is to fly with her mom, which is wonderful and super sweet. So it runs in their blood. Captain Michelle's father was instrumental in both her and Addie's lives when they were young, but that's not where the aviation bug came in. It was actually Grant Husted Sr., who is Addie's great-grandfather. Um, he began flying in 1947. Although he flew for fun, his son, Grant Husted Jr., made it into his career. Over the years, the girls actually got to fly with him multiple times. Michelle said that's how she got into flying. It says here that Grant Husted Jr. inherited Consolidated Ag Service, which was a farm equipment business. And he sought to implement airplanes into the business. He would apparently take his family on trips via his personal plane. So Michelle said that they went everywhere. They went to the Bahamas. They did ski trips, all kinds of things, all by plane. So when she started pursuing her own pilot certificate, she was able to fly with her dad a lot and rack up the hours. So she really cherishes those memories and she's flown for delta for the last 12 years she says her favorite thing about flying is connecting people to their adventures and seeing the world addie caught the aviation bug very quickly uh, and again she got her private pilot certificate last july congratulations addie uh, she said she always knew that she would be a pilot and she's very confident in the sky due to her family's background she is inspired by her mom and all of her stories of all the flying adventures that she's taken and by her grandfather, who continued the tradition of flying and other family traditions with the grandchildren and flew them places as well. Both Addie and Michelle's favorite memories are flying with Grant. They talk a little bit about their memories. So if you want to read this, it's in the Bemidji Pioneer. I think this one's sweet. So ladies, if you listen to the podcast, please, we would love to have you on. We've done that before where we kind of called out that, hey, we'd love to have you on as a guest and I worked. And now off to Jim for some events. Thank you, Trevor. The beginning of a new year brings us some new events to start talking about. Kicking things off, we'll talk about the Hudson Hot Air Affair running February 3rd through the 5th, 2023. This event will feature more than 30 balloonists from five states who will travel to Hudson, Wisconsin for the weekend. They hope to share in the excitement of the sport of hot air ballooning. They will have hot air balloon launches on Saturday, February 4th at 7.35 a.m. and alternate launch time on February 4th at 3 p.m. and again on Sunday, February 5th at 7.35 a.m. All launches will occur on the grounds of EP Rock School, 
which is at 340 13th Street South in Hudson, Wisconsin. For more information, check out HudsonHotAirAffair.com. Next up, the Winter Flight Fest, occurring at EAA's Aviation Museum. This will occur Saturday, February 11th, from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. The all-day activities at the museum will include a Wright Flyer Simulator, paper airplane launches, X-planes, pararescue challenge, and more. Also included is a ski plane fly-in where you can watch seasoned pilots land their ski planes at Pioneer Airport. Admission for the event is $12.50 for adults, seniors are $10.50, youth aged 6 to 18 are $9.50, and children under the age of 5 are free. EAA members are also free. More information is available on EAA.org and will include a full link in the show notes. And our final event to talk to you about, Iceport 2023. Now we talked about Iceport last year. This year's event will occur on Saturday, March 4th from 10 a.m. until 3 p.m. The backup day for this event will be on March 5th, 2023. The location will again be at Max Twin Bay on Lake Malax. More information on this event is available on the Facebook page for Create Lift, which is facebook.com forward slash create lift. And that'll do it for our events. I want to go to Iceport this year. Manny and I were going to go last year, but the weather sucked. Weren't we? Yeah, I forgot about, yep, I forgot about that. And with that, I think I got to bid you guys goodbye. All right, bye, Trevor. We'll see you at the end of the episode. Bye. All right, so on to our guest for this episode. We're happy to introduce to you Carrie McCauley. Carrie's career in aviation began as a crew chief with the Minnesota National Guard flying in the UH-1H Huey helicopters. Carrie would go on to fly as a ferry pilot, taking him to 60 countries, crossing over three oceans and six continents. His adventures in this field would lead him to write two books, one being Ferry Pilot and the other Dangerous Flights. He was also featured on two seasons of Discovery Channel's series Dangerous Flights. And if that wasn't enough, Carrie also owns and operates a skydiving school in western Wisconsin. So Carrie, welcome to the Flying Midwest Podcast. Pleasure. So as with all of our guests, and we talked a little bit about this before we started, we're going to dive into our fast five questions we start our guests with. So the idea being it's a it's a quick response question and answer thing. We ask you a question and you just give us a, your quick gut reaction to that question. You ready to go? Fire away. All right. Favorite place that you've flown to? Egypt. What about Egypt? I got to buzz the pyramids and that was pretty cool. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, that buzz is- wall in between the pyramids. It was awesome. No kidding. Yeah. So cool. three, three times. <laughs> yeah, you can't do it just once. <laughs> well, right. If you do it once, you might as well do it three times. We are for sure going to revisit that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, your favorite airplane. Doesn't have to be one you've flown either. So The Piper Air. Well, I, I usually go with ones I've flown. I love the Aerostar. Okay. Fastest piston twin ever built. That was that was a cool plane. I want to preface this part of this is in the space of your dream aircraft your dream aircraft to fly, not necessarily that you have to own it and maintain it and worry about all the maintenance costs. You could have the opportunity to fly any airplane, what would it be? Probably an A4. A4? Yeah. That it would seems be like cool. A, looks, it sounds like a fun jet to fly that you strap it on and just go rip around in it and sounds like a hoot. All right. Favorite aviation film character? Oh, boy. I can't remember the the character's name, but the movie Always with Duffy. What the heck's the guy's name? The actor. 
Again, it stars in Always. It's the movie about the fire bombers. Okay. And then he dies and he's a ghost. And he's kind of a cowboy, old town cowboy pilot. I like him. I kind of can identify with him. <laughs> Any aviator that you could meet and have a conversation with, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, boy. I guess I'd go with uh, Ernest Gann, author of Fate is a Hunter. That's okay. a new one. We haven't gotten that one yet. Yeah, that's a new one, yeah. Sorry, yeah, dog. He's uh, that's a good I, actually. His books, his book inspired me to write mine. He's just got okay. some great stories oh. and he did some some pretty cool stuff back back when it was 40, back in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. I have Fate as the Hunter on my bookshelf. It is my next to read if I ever find the time. <laughs> I'm an instructor, so I'm like. Oh, I, I all I read is textbooks, just like I was well, in school. Nothing see, has changed. You have the controls. I'm reading my book. Just look up everyone's <laughs> lecture. Make sure he's not going to get the short review towers. Once I'm in commercial, once my students are in commercial, that's what I'll do to them. Yeah, you yeah. fly. I know you could fly. I taught you well. Go fly. I'll just read. <laughs> we got that long, what is it, two, two hour cross country you got to do, right? The two hour day for an hour, right? Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah, you're Four not hours. required to talk to them. That's really their job is to do all that stuff. You just sit there, make well, it legal, you do your thing. <laughs> well, Carrie, thanks for playing along with our Fast Five questions. So, Carrie, um, tell us a little bit about your aviation background. Well, I started in aviation in 1979 when I joined the Minnesota National Guard and was a Huey crew chief down at the South St. Paul Airport, or St. Paul downtown, I'm sorry. That's where I met uh, Pete Demos. His father owned the ferry company I ended up working for, and he told me about ferry flying, and that sounded like the coolest job in the world, flying small planes around the world. But I didn't have a pilot's license, so back then the U of M had a flight school at uh, the south end of Anoka County. I took flying lessons there from Waldo Anderson, was one of my first instructors, and gave me all my check rides. And so I built all my time up there, got all my ratings, uh, started skydiving out in Osceola, Became a jump pilot to build up enough time to become a ferry pilot. After that, got about 1,100 hours and started flying overseas. That's so cool. So you learned to fly to Noka, and then you got in with the ferrying. Like, how did you get into that? Well, like I say, one of the fellow crew chiefs down in St. Paul, his dad owned the company, Red Air, and that was based out of South St. Paul. I hit him up at uh, his son's wedding when he was good and drunk and yep. convinced him to, to hire me. <laughs> Timing's everything. It was strategic. It that was not an accident. <laughs> it's about was it? timing and who interview. you know. <laughs> there you go. Definitely. Was he planning on this interview? Nope, not at all. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, it clearly ended up well for you, so you did yeah, something yeah. right. So you passed this great interview. Um, well, <laughs> let me ask you this. Does he remember the interview or... <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, even the other guys, because it was, he was sitting at a table with a bunch of, all, all bunch of ferry pilots, and let me tell you, that was pretty intimidating, going cool. up to a bunch of guys whose job it was to fly small airplanes all over the world, and here's, I'm just some little nothing, say, hi, you know, a little kid, hi, can I play? <laughs> <laughs> they give me a lot of grief, you know, and made a lot of fun of me there, but they're like, ah, fine. <laughs> For people who aren't familiar with ferry flying. Can you give a, a brief description of what that's about? I mean, I, I know that Maddie and I know what you're talking about as far as ferry aircraft around, but for the layperson who may not know. Basic ferry pilot delivers airplanes from one point to another. 
know, and it could be as small as a Piper Cub from Minnesota to Iowa or as big as a 747 around the world. What I did, I specialized in international ferrying, and usually it's somebody would buy an airplane, and they lived in one part of the world, let's say Singapore, and the plane's in Ohio, and they're not stupid enough to fly out of the ocean themselves. That's what they call me, because <laughs> I am stupid. So... <laughs> When you start out in this industry, do they start you out with smaller flights, like just around the United States, and then you move your way into international stuff? Or how does that work? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's what I assumed. You know, basically, they gave me a call that first week and said, you know, are you ready for a trip? And you know, I figured you know, they'd give me something easy like Iowa or Texas. Um, in my case, my first ferry flight was a solo trip to uh, Portugal. So, no, they didn't start that's, me off. That's not Texas <laughs> or Ohio. <laughs> Literally one week after that interview, I was sitting in a, du a beach duchess, which I'd never heard of before. Wow. Oh my on my God. way to Portugal. By no. myself. By yourself, my, even. My boss was <laughs> with, he was in another plane. He was in a yeah. uh, 206 and he was going to Switzerland. And so we were together ish, you know, but in the same airspace. But I was solo in the cockpit. Before we left, we ran me through Orient Air's vigorous ferry pilot training course, which consisted of three hours sitting, uh, sitting in my boss's office, drinking scotch, listening to him tell me all the different ways you can get killed over the North Atlantic. It was very inspiring. I, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I am not kidding. That was that was it. Like, here we go. Had you had any transatlantic flights at that point? Or? Zero. Biggest body of water I'd ever crossed was Lake Michigan. Okay. And I think I'd cross Lake Michigan at the time. Maybe it was Malax. I don't know. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there were no oceans in my logbook. That was, that's for sure. Those are two very different lakes, sir. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's a lot of confidence they put in you right out of the gate. Or yeah. Maybe just, good luck, kid. Let's go. <laughs> kind of. And it was, uh, it was a really interesting trip. You know, I mean, the first time you take off over the ocean, it's kind of a gut check. You know, it's like, sure. you look over your shoulder and there, that last little bit of land disappears. Like, okay, here we go. You know, that first trip was easy though. I mean, it was a beautiful day. I, you know, it's a light twin. Everything worked great. And I realized, you know, I, I'd made the best decision of my life. You know, it was just the easiest job in the world. And that lasted right about to, to the midway point of the trip. And then it all went uh, incredibly south from there. I didn't have the problem my boss did. He lost his uh, vacuum pump. No. Okay. And the second half of the trip wasn't going to be sunny and nice. The second half of the trip was low clouds, heavy rain, thunderstorms, <laughs> low visibility, and at night. So, oh, and this was also pre-GPS. So, was find the yeah. islands in the Azores, you know, middle of the ocean with uh, NDB, ADF. Good times. Wow. So, this is what I'm training my students for. Yeah. 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 <laughs> kind of. Kind of. It sounds we like one of those, like, stories of like back in my day i had to walk up you know in the rain to school uphill both ways in molasses kind of thing like oh that could never happen in real life but here you are like you did that which is crazy yeah. with an ndb no less like yep and he uh he was scared to fly partial panels so we hooked up and we flew night ifr formation flight for eight hours in the rain and holy dark, cow you know. <laughs> Is that legal? Can you do that? You can do whatever you want over the middle of the ocean. Yeah, Who's international waters, right? Yeah, nobody, right. nobody cares. I did ask the FAA one time about because I put a lot of stuff in my books that are about the times that 
I was not legal. And I said, so what's the statute of limitations here? They yeah. Goes, you know, once you're not in the United States anymore, they basically don't care. I mean, you did what you had to, right? Like, it's not like you would just do that for fun. You did that so the other person, you know, didn't been into the ocean. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no one's going out going, hey, you know it'll be really fun today? Let's do partial panel over the middle of the Atlantic. Come on, let's go. And I have bar. And let's formation fly it. Come on. It's going to be oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Put that in your logbook. Yeah, got that. for real. Not me, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. So, And this is your first flight ferry flying. Yeah. That's incredible. That was my very first international leg in a 30-year career, and it, it pretty much set the tone for my whole career because I've just had almost every trip has been like that. I've never had a trip where it's like, well, that just went smooth as silk. I mean, they're all unbelievable. That's that's how I got two books out of it. I was going to say, I mean, this is maybe jumping the gun in the conversation, but we're right here, so might as well. Um, how did you transition into that space where, like, I should write, is it like you're just goofing around with the buddy going, I should write a book about this? Or No, I mean, actually, while it was happening, I was starting to take notes, not really keeping a journal, but kind of like, I got to write this down. This was crazy. I yeah. even brought a tape recorder because at the end of the day, I'd be too lazy to do that, so I'd put some stuff <laughs> on a tape recorder. And then over the years, you know, I would come back and I'd go to the drop zone telling all the skydivers these stories. And over the years, they said, you should write a book. I think mainly because they were sick of hearing my stories. Like, just write it down and then we can ignore you from afar. <laughs> but uh, I mostly started writing it for myself and for my kids because I was realizing I was starting to forget a lot of these stories because there were just so many of them. You just think sure. every trip I'm come back, like, you can't believe what happened to me on this one. They're like, Really? Now that's number 38. Crazy story. <laughs> so I figured I better write them down before they disappear. So we talked about your first flight. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, well, where can we go from here? I mean, because if you get 30 years of stories like this, we could be here all night. That's one of the boring stories. That's nothing. That just happened to be <laughs> the first one. <laughs> so as you're getting into this career field of, of doing this ferry flying, I mean, there's got to be certain parts of it that are, I mean, maybe there is a bit of a thrill to it of, doing transatlantic flights and doing challenging flying and things that the average aviator like in the Midwest isn't going to go do. Yeah. That's one of the things I really love about ferry flying is when I have those emergencies. I'm I'm a sick and twisted individual. I love malfunctions and emergencies. I thrive on that. That's what I've trained for literally my whole life, even before I started flying, because I like to be tested and have, you know, come through at the end like, yes, I figured that out. And didn't get hurt, didn't die. That's that's what gives me the thrill. When I come, when I land from either an airplane ride or a skydive, and I have my hands shaking, the adrenaline's going like, "That's cool." <laughs> I'm not, I'm not well. I gotta ask you. You mentioned in the Fast Five questions, flying through the pyramids or buzzing the pyramids in Egypt. How does one get an opportunity to do that? In that particular case, I was delivering a Cherokee Six to Amwar Sadat's son. And I picked him up in Alexandria, which is out of the north coast of Egypt on the coast of the Mediterranean. And together we f flew to Cairo. And we got to Cairo, he said, hey, have you ever seen the pyramids? I go, no, nope, first time in Egypt. This is awesome dream come, dream come true for a pilot to, you know, to fly to Egypt. And go, like, go that way, there's the pyramids. And I'm like, holy cow, there they are. Then he looks over me like, you want to buzz them? We're like, <laughs> <laughs> can we? Is that leak? He goes, I'm at worse than that son. What are they going to do? I'm like, well, heck yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and it's like, 
put pour the coals to it and right down. I got some great pictures. And oh, good. And and first thing that struck me is that the Sphinx is right there too. I'm like, holy crap, there's a Sphinx. And right in between them, you know, the pure, the tops of the pre reds on either side. And we pull up and laugh and like, do it again. And we did it three times. <laughs> Two of us are giggling like schoolgirls, just laughing our butts off. And uh, then we take <laughs> off. He goes, we should get out of here. Even I'm going to have some explaining to do tomorrow. I mean, that's, that wasn't even the end of the day. So then we go to this, this, is the airport. It's in the middle of Cairo. It's kind of a private airport. And it's this airport sunken down in the middle of these huge, really tall apartment buildings. It's like just this hole in the city. And we're, he sets me up on final. And I look out. And there's a bunch of st- stuff in the air. And I get closer. And the kids are flying kites top of the buildings in the approach path <sighs> and like i felt like getting a couple of kills but i figured nah, i better not so i kind of weave in between the kites and you get down sent up on final and i look over my hey kamal um there's a couple hundred kids playing soccer on the runway i know they'll move like <laughs> all right and just like in minnesota they look over their shoulder of their car you know when they're playing street hockey and they just <laughs> Literally, as you're coming into land, they parted the, like the Red Sea just enough for you to get past. They didn't get off the runway. They just gave you a wings width, <laughs> and they pulled right in behind you. And the whole way down, they would just step out of the way, curl right back, and go back to playing soccer. It was the craziest thing you've ever seen. It was like that's nuts. Yeah. So I know you're a little bit of a like a, a thrill seeker, if you will. It kind of seems to be your mo. Not seeker, it's just willing, thrill willing. Well. Thrill willing. Is that a term? It is now. I just said it. <laughs> you're a thrill willer. Mind it. Thrill willer. It. There we go. Yeah. Watch out. TikTok, here it comes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've always been curious about how ferry pilots, you know, I know a lot of people specialize in like, yeah, I do teal wheels or yeah, I do, you know, you know, old warbirds or whatever, you know, everybody's got their thing. Like, how do you get like experience, like realistically do you like you know go through the pohs of all the planes do you how do you get the experience necessary especially if you're like in the beginning of your career you just kind of go for it that's actually one of one of the things i really loved about my early ferry career and even now yeah when we get a new plane often it's not only one i've never flown before but maybe even never heard of before and when you get there we never get a checkout because by the time i show up the deal's been done seller's got his check and he's not coming within a mile of that plane because if anything happens to the plane, he's got to give the money back. So usually the keys are on the seat or in the debt office someplace. And yeah, you just get the POH out, skim through it, see if there's any unusual emergency procedures or fuel management stuff. Then flip to the page to says how to start the engine, <laughs> start it up, get it on the runway, get it going as fast as you can down the runway. That usually works. And start flying it figure it out on the way. I did learn about turbocharged engines that way because I was on a Seneca and I went to full power and two little red lights come up and say overboost. I'm like, overboost? Oh, that's bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they would put me in this dumbest stuff that really I had no business on. We've, I figured at Beach 99, which is a big twin, you know, like a 1900 from Finland that hadn't flown in a couple of years. I'd never been in anything even remotely that size. Here, go fly that. For the most part, a plane's a plane, you know, get it, keep your airspeed up and figure out how to get the gear up and down in the flaps. And, you know, I mean, the POH is pretty, pretty handy, but a lot of times I hardly would even glance at it, except, you know, it's like, okay, well, when stuff goes wrong, then you might go through there and see, I wonder what the solution is to that. Just wing it. 
just swing it. Get it? Is that is that an aviation yeah. pun? Is that on your <laughs> is that on your business card? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So what do you feel was some of your greatest challenges in doing this type of flying? Most of the big challenges were on the ground. That's kind of the hard part. Back when I started, we didn't use handlers. So dealing with all the bureaucracy and flight plans and all that stuff, that's that's often really challenging. But like back when I started though, there was no internet, there was no for flight, you know, this was all paper maps. What sure. getting weather was really challenging. Africa and the Middle East, you never got weather. So I would go on two thousand mile cross countries across Africa with zero forecast, no winds aloft, nor forecast at the destination nothing but look out the window that's what it is here now and good luck they pretty much just have to be ready for anything which is also part of the fun part you know you're almost always by yourself and self-reliant and just dealing with the stuff that happens which is kind of what keeps me going in this it's there's it's a drug you know just you don't know what's going to happen that morning you get up it's like well here we go flying across Africa today. I wonder what's going to happen. You've obviously gained a ton of experience and learned a lot from this type of flying. What are some of the, the biggest teaching moments that you had? Like where you learned something that, that either changed how you fly or was something that worth passing on and teaching to somebody else? A lot of weather stuff. You know, you're you're constantly battling thunderstorms and icing and low clouds. Uh, ended up doing a lot of scud running, which is a skill. I don't try to teach it to anybody because people will go out and get killed but um done properly you can you can do it one of the big things that i that took away from it though is the whole general attitude of what you do when something happens basically my my mantra is if you've got time to panic you've got time to do something more productive so sure if something happens put your the your feelings and your ah away in a little box you can bring that out later over beers you just shove that away and say, what's the problem? What's this, you know, possible cause? What's the solution? Where are my escape routes? How can I not die today? And work that. I feel that, unfortunately, that's that's a skill that most pilots these days don't learn because these days, you know, students growing up, their planes are too good. I mean, you've got glass cockpits and the planes are meticulously maintained and nothing ever breaks. And the same with their cars. I mean, learning how to deal with emergencies is a skill like anything else. If you've got 2,000 hours and you've never had an engine even so much as hiccup the first time that happens, you don't know how you're going to respond. You, know, you might be cool, Chuck Yeager, like, I got this, shut that engine down. I know it's on fire, big deal, get me another Diet Coke and I'm going to keep going. Or <laughs> it hiccups once in the pattern, like, you dive for the ground and smash it into a hangar, like ooh, that's that's what I took, a, you know, from from my ferry flying. That's what I it gave me the ability to think in emergencies. Are there any that stand out as like oh shit moments that really shaped you at all? Probably the biggest one was the night I lost my ferry system over the middle of the Atlantic. I was ferrying a brand new Bonanza from the factory to Paris. And I've taken off from California and it's, it had ferry tanks in it. And the ferry tanks are, you know, take the seats out of the plane, shovel the back and put big metal ferry tanks in the plane. And they're pressurized by a tube. You put a ram or a tube through the bottom and it, a tube goes to the top of the tank and it forces positive air to pressurize the tank, which forced the fuel out to the wings. Literally in the middle of the night, halfway over the North Atlantic, I turned that system on and it didn't work. 
and that was bad because I definitely didn't have enough fuel to get back to Canada. Definitely didn't have fuel to get to Paris or even to Ireland. I needed that gas and I needed to make it work. You know, I had maybe a half an hour of fuel left when that happened and it was like, I was going to die if I didn't figure this out in the next 30 minutes because there's no way I'm going to survive a night ditching in the North Atlantic. And basically I had to take my ferry system apart, figure out what was wrong. The, the pressurization system wasn't working. I took that hose off and looked at it like, well, blow up an air mattress. Maybe I can blow up a metal ferry tank. And I stuck in my mouth and started blowing into it. And after a couple of minutes, the pressure built up and I capped it off and I moved a couple of gallons. Like, cool. My Apollo 13 moment, you know, I, I moved some gas. Then I did some calculations and realized I was going to have to blow into that tank all night, nonstop for eight and a half hours. And let me tell you, that was the longest night of my life. As, you know, have you ever, ever blown up a kid's floaty toy? You know, after a couple of minutes, it's kind of, kind of tough. Do that for eight and a half hours. Oh, by the way, I was at 15,000 feet with no oxygen, so... Oh, good. Yeah, so... Safety. And, and, yeah, <laughs> and gas fumes in the cockpit. And I had to stay up there because that the winds... The only reason I was doing that route because the high winds locked up at 15,000 feet were allowing me to skip going down to the Azores. So that was a long night. But it's, it was one of those things where, you know, it happened and I'm like, all right. It was almost a calming Zen moment. It's like I took whatever panic was and I'm like, well, that's not going to help. How do I fix this? And, you know, and when you survive something like that, you think, you know, I can, I can do anything. You know, that was, that was incredible. So what kind of things would you tell someone who's looking at doing ferry flying? Well, yeah, I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, how to get into it. And I've helped a couple of people along the way. It's a lot tougher to get into it these days because the insurance requirements are a little more stringent. So I tell guys, you know, fly as many different kind of planes as you can to get very experienced. I mean, that's good advice for any pilot, but if you're trying to get a job and they say, do you have any movie time? Even if you only have a half an hour, you can say yes versus, oh, I've never flown that at all. I mean, they'll last, you know, don't lie to them and say, yeah, I got a couple hundred hours, but you know, you can at least say, I have flown that. Yes, sure. the order, but I've been in that plane. Most guys start small. They start flying ferry stuff around the U.S., which is good. I mean, that's a good way to, to learn how to ferry fly when you're over Especially the U.S. because there's an airport every 25 miles and there's great services and great radar. Sure. You really have to try hard to get in trouble over the United States. So once you've built up some experience, then you go head over the ocean. So I've been thinking about this flying over the ocean, flying, <laughs> not myself, by the way. I just want to clarify that. I'm just thinking about like the process of this, doing this solo. What on earth do you do to keep yourself occupied? I read a lot. I read, read a lot of books, listen to music, sing along the music, you know, drum along on the... Instrument panel, play a lot, air guitar. <laughs> Helps to practice. I got pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> the The biggest challenge when you're ferry flying is is the fatigue, staying awake, especially when you're a single pilot, you know, and especially if you're going eastbound. So when you're going eastbound, you're you're burning through time zones. So you got to get up super early in the morning, get out to the airport, get the plane ready to go, take off hopefully before dawn, fly all day long, maybe, maybe just one really long leg or two really long legs. Usually by the time you get to your destination that day, it's late at night, everything's closed. You got to get put the airplane to bed, get it ready for the next morning, try to find a hotel. There's never any restaurants open anymore, so you got to bring your snack bag along. Find a hotel, 
try to get some sleep. That can be really tough because you're still jazzed from 10 hours of flying. You know, your adrenaline is still going. And then the next day's trip is going to be just as challenging. So good luck getting getting to sleep and do it all over again. Do that for a week straight. This is a good segue. You're talking about kind of what a typical day looks like. What does your schedule look like over time? For the most part, you're expected to go, go, go until you're done. Sometimes if they're not in a hurry, you can take a day off, but those are non-paid days and you'll be expected to pay your own expenses at that point, you know, like hotel and food and all that stuff. So if you at a cool, a cool location, say, you know, I'm going to chill out here for a day or two and enjoy this. They're like, fine. I rarely do that. And I really kind of, over the years, I, I kind of wish I would have here and there, but you know, when I was young and doing it for a living, it was just go, go, go as fast as you can. Are there any other thoughts about fairy flying that you want to share before we move into the the book stuff? One thing that people don't usually ask, which is kind of weird, is how to deal with the fear of being where you are. Okay. The knowledge, like a single engine over the North Atlantic, you know, the knowledge that one little part of that engine goes in, you're in the drink. Survival rates for guys that ditch is really low. I mean, back when I started, we lost an average of three pilots a year in the North Atlantic. Jeez. Not just my company, that's like everybody, but they're, and they're still going down. It doesn't really make the news, but you know, you get some guy that took off going to, going to Greenland and didn't show up and they have no idea what happened to him. He just disappeared. And there's a lot of guys that can't handle that, that thought, you know, when they're sitting over, just like it, that stress that something can happen at any second. And there's a lot of guys that quit. They leave, they turn around and they'll put, park the plane on the ramp in St. John's, Newfoundland and catch a flight home and say, nope, couldn't do it. Oh, there's just not a lot of guys that do it a lot. And some people do one, two trips. After that, they're just like, no, nah, I can't, can't do that. I just, for myself personally, I don't know how the other guys really deal with it. I have a pretty high risk tolerance, but there's some things, like I really don't want to do the single edge of piston anymore because if I get killed because of something I did, stupid, that's on me and I can accept that. But one little oil line goes and I'm in the water. I just, that's hard to accept. So try not to, try not to do that anymore, but it's also try not to think about it when you're over the ocean. Sure. Is there a certain amount of stress that comes with that then? Oh, for sure. Like a cumulative stress that we're like, like how would, how do you guys deal with that? I got kind of numb to it. I basically realized that it's, it's, you can't be that scared for that long. After a while, it's like, you either blow your I'm scared circuit breaker and just don't reset it and you'll be fine. Or if it doesn't blow, you'll be a nervous wreck and you'll only do one trip and you can never do it again. I do everything I can to enhance my odds of survival. I mean, I'm a, the actual survival stuff is kind of my hobby. I was a winter survival instructor in the Army. I make my own survival kits. I examine every every area that I fly over and customize my, my survival kit. But that could be really different. You know, I mean, if I'm flying from St. Paul to Tanzania, I'm going to start off over northern Canada. So I need my boreal fork forest survival kit. Then I got to have my ocean survival kit over the, over the Atlantic. If I'm going over Greenland, I need my Arctic survival kit gear for the ice cap. Go down through Europe into Africa, go over the Sahara. I need desert survival, then finish off in Africa with jungle survival. So I try to be as prepared as I can for that eventuality of me going down, but 
once you've done all you can do, pretend it's another day. And before we pull Trevor back in here, um, it was a fun interview with Carrie. Oh, yeah. Wow. The stories this guy has to tell. Ooh. And I think we only scratched the surface of the stories that he has. The surface of the surface. Yeah. I think, like, when they say, yeah, you should write a book, like, he should be writing, like, a series. Like, he's got so many stories, and they're all as riveting as the last. So Carrie has so much to share with us that we have to actually split this into two episodes. So on the next episode, we'll talk more about his book and his time on the Discovery Channel series, Dangerous Flights. If anybody hears these stories that he just told, like, they're going to be riveted. I was riveted. I, oh. So since this is the first episode of 2023, I figure we might as well tell you what's coming up this year. I almost feel like we should find a voiceover actor to do like okay. on this season of the Flying Bewis podcast. <laughs> so what's going on this year for our podcast? We've got some exciting guests already lined up. We've got Tyler Lauer. He is a former UND lead flight instructor. So Tyler was part of UND's Aerocast, uh, the YouTube channel that they have put together to share instructional flight type videos. That's not a good way to word any of that. We also have Sporty's president, John Zimmerman. He's also the host of the Pilot Discretion Podcast. Uh, I'll be excited to have another podcaster on and share some thoughts amongst one another. Manny, who else do we have coming? Well, we have um, coming up Liz Cayley from Jefferson, um, who she is the head of the uh, flight training uh, department of Jefferson, which is now getting revived. So she's been pretty busy doing all kinds of uh, stuff for that, but she was able to make a little time in her schedule for us. So we're really excited about that. Sweet. And I assume that if you've read any Jet books, you've read some of her work. You have read her work. Just for future planning, mm -hmm. we have a slight little surprise for you guys. Perhaps. April Fool's, April 1st or April Fool's Day is published date for one of our episodes. Do with that information whatever you feel you want to do. Yeah, we'll see what happens. So lots of fun stuff coming up in 2023. We hope you stick around. And if you like what we're doing, share it with your friends. Thank you all for listening. If you have ideas for a future episode, go ahead and reach out to us, any of our social media accounts or Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time. See ya. See ya. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us on the Flying Midwest Podcast. Until next time, podcast service terminated, Squawk VFR, frequency change approved. Good day. I also like pictures. That's why I pick books that have lots of pictures. My computer's been very upset with me. See, I just sacrifice some stuff to my computer every once in a while, and it keeps it running. You make a sacrifice to the computer gods? Yes. Maybe you just need to, like, <laughs> go find a rabbit or something. Sacrifice a rabbit for the computer. Nothing keeps the immune system guessing quite like raw sewage. <laughs> Good God. Ugh. You know you're hearing that again. This Florida tourism ad presented to you by the Flying Midwest Podcast. And a bee... Words are again hard. A Wisconsin high school fund airplane program. Um, that did not come out really well.
Yeah, it did not sound right. That did not right sound. It's the... No, Flying the Friendly Skies is United, isn't it? What's their slogan? They have one? Only, only if we had a machine at our fingertips. And they've only... Well, maybe someday. Southwest, we beat our competitors, not you. Um, how like, about this one? Because we're Delta Airlines, and life is a f***ing nightmare. Nightmare. <laughs> You're a little fat girl, aren't you? <laughs> Say it. I'm a little fat girl. Sorry. <laughs> we took off when you were in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, John Mulaney, new in town, circa 2012. Apparently there was a, a STEM high school in Wisconsin, in uh, Waso uh, Westosha. West Osha. West Osha? Let's look Worcestershire. at this. Worcestershire sauce. Who's your sister sauce? Where's your sister sauce? <laughs> at uh, Rocky Mountain College in Billings, Mont... Oh, I'm sorry. She heard her pilot price. Pilot... Pri Words are Pepper, you gave it to me. Pilot's Pisces. Pilot's Pisces. Pisces. They will have hot air balloon launches on February... They will have hot air balloon launches on Saturday. Blah. Next set. Look at all the emails I just got. It's by one student making silliness on the schedule. Is it scheduling time to listen to your podcast with you? Are they like, are they suspicious? He doesn't know about the podcast since that's what you, that might. Block it. Because it's your work. It's, it, you're like co, what do you call them? Like coworkers, people you yeah coworkers. <laughs> These are my students. It's a different dynamic. Leave me alone. No, no. I'm not putting that in there. This podcast <laughs> is a disaster. Are you, are you reading a review somewhere? It's called it's stalking. It's no, it's not. It's good research. It's how you get guests. I've stalked plenty of people on. Wait, 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 wait a second. You enunciate that again. No, because it sounds like that's how you get gas. That's the what I thought you said. Guests. 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 Guests.